2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shawley at the Labour Party conference in Brighton where one person continues to haunt the party. Tony Blair, that's our big thing that's coming up on the episode today. We take a look at the legacy of the only living Labour leader to win an election. We've got a brilliant panel coming up. there's such a good chat with uh, Susie Boniface from the uh, Mirror, Patrick Hennessy, former journalist, former spin doctor for Ed Miliband, and then Sadiq Khan and John Rental, uh, the chief political commentator from the Independent, biographer of Tony Blair, and an advisor on this new BBC series which is coming out uh, all about uh, the history of New Labour. So it's a classic, c- cracking interview. It's a cracking panel coming up for you in just a few minutes' time. But first, our columnist panel. No Finkovich this week, because they haven't been bothered to come to Brighton. If they're not going to come, they can't join in the fun. So instead, we're joined in person by Janice Turner and Hugo Rifkin. Let's focus on, on the news. We'll talk about the party conference in a minute. Um, panic. The politics of panic you've written about in your column today, Yes, Hugo. sure. And I know that there will be some people, probably including my wife, will say, stop talking about it, because this, pro- this is the problem. If you all stop talking about it, people would stop panicking.
3: Yes. Well, so, I mean, my view is, firstly, that panic is rational, because it's not going to be okay. And I'm sorry if that's a dangerous thing to say <laughs> on the radio. But basically, the reason why people are panicking is because they're panicking. I mean, is it panic, or is it just a sort of rational, there's not going to be enough petrol, so I need to fill up my car? It's like when people panic bought before the pandemic, it's because they thought, well... I'm not going to be able to buy milk on the way home from work because I'm not going to be coming home from work and everyone else is buying all the milk and toilet paper, so I better better get and get some. It's a completely rational thing to do. It's not like we all wasted loads and loads of food we didn't eat. We just filled filled up cupboards and then we ate it all. Um, The reason why people are panicking, I mean, the petrol situation is a bit different because it's not like there's this short-term thing. It's a broken system. We have Mm. a broken system that's supposed to bring petrol to us and doesn't quite enough. And I think people look to uh the system of government we have in this country particularly the actual government and think is this a government that were chosen and elected and elected for their ability to do things like solving supply crisis global supply crisis issues and they think no they were chosen and selected for their ability to fight the culture war and say the right things about brexit and so of course people panicking because they were panicking because there's there's just no there's there's no backstop there and no faith that it's going to get better janice are you panicking
4: Right. Mm, I've got a hybrid car, so I've got a few, a few, <laughs> a 50, few miles left on the tank.
3: Panic. Yeah, 50 yeah, yeah. yeah. we, we, yeah. We've got a Flintstones car. You put your feet on the bottom and you just run. We're <laughs> fine. We're laughing at all those Brexisters.
4: Uh Well, I think what's going on is partly, as Hugo says, the government's quite incompetent. But I th- think also there's a kind of li- recalibration going on about how systems are run. And, you know, for a long, long time, we relied upon cheap foreign labour. And the cheap foreign labour has gone away now. And I didn't know this. And I'm glad that uh, uh, this crisis has brought it to my attention that how badly HGV drivers are treated in this country. Like they have no showers and they have to sleep in lay-bys and they're treated really, really badly and not paid well. And I would imagine now there is a process of recalibration you know there was something there was uh, 30,000 hgv tests uh, people couldn't take during the covid pandemic some of these people are now going to qualify and an hgv driver job might become a better job and i think that's a good thing and okay in the meantime we're all queuing for petrol and that's atrocious and the army is going to be brought in and care workers can't get petrol for their cars and that is absolutely atrocious and these short-term solutions but i think the recalibration isn't so bad
2: The key thing seems to be with the, uh, particularly with this government, is they go. I think it was Tony Danker yesterday from the CPI was saying, there's this sort of pattern of uh, industry warns government that X is an issue, and they say no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, and it goes on. Then a few months later, X becomes an issue, and uh, the government sort of holds the line for as long as it can, and then and then finally picks up the phone and says, right, what do we need to do to sort this out? Uh, was if they'd engaged in the first... But they didn't want to admit... They didn't want to admit there's a problem until, you know, there were queues of cars that everyone can see. And I suppose it goes back to your point, uh, Hugo, that they're not really in the... It's more about the image than the...
3: What what is government for? Why yes. have we got one? I mean, like Ma- Matthew Paris writing on, on Saturday was talking about how, as a conservative, he's disturbed that we increasingly look to government to solve our solve our problems. Rare, rarely for me, I completely disagree with him. I mean, what it, look, what what is a government for? Right, you've got. I mean, you know, they've been sitting there in in, in 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 Parliament in Whitehall through the pandemic, through the process of Brexit. If they're, not, if they're not making themselves aware of what problems this is likely to throw up further down the line, this business I write about in my column of cabotage, if I'm pronouncing that right, <laughs> sabotage with a C, which is basically foreign truckers who deliver stuff in Britain and then on their way home, say they deliver something in, I don't know, Newcastle, on their way home they do a run between sort of Newcastle and Southampton, they taking stuff back something else It moves a lot here. of stuff around Britain. It's, it's a significant percentage of British haulage. Now, this obviously becomes impossible post-Brexit or very difficult post-Brexit because because the trucks are less likely to come in and we've got we don't have Spanish firms doing domestic haulage in Britain anymore I don't remember this being discussed on either side really during the Brexit referendum you would think these things are pretty vital you'd think just somebody somebody somewhere as we as Brexit sort of properly kicked in as we actually did leave rather than just as the phony war began to end would have gone hang on there might be a haulage issue coming up round about Christmas particularly as we had one last year over Christmas, and all the truckers had to spend Christmas on a runway in Kent. You'd think, you know, it, it, I mean, it's just, I don't know, what, what are they doing if not this?
2: It's weird as it, well at uh, the politics, Janice, that, you know, take back control, and immigration was a massive part of that message. But control doesn't mean shut the door. You know, the, the, a, a government that maybe had more confidence in its own ability to communicate a message would say, we ha- have got control now, and we are going to use that control so we don't run out of turkeys at Christmas and petrol and uh, whatever else. But holding the line on, no, we're not letting anybody in, seems to have been more important. Well, even even regardless of the you know, leading to the political cost It might might. Well, face I now. guess
4: the pandemic has really... I think the average voter will be alarmed by the petrol crisis, no doubt. But I also think that they will be all thinking that uh, this is a unique circumstance, that there is COVID as well. And so people are not being trained as truckers. Uh, uh, and that is a problem. You know, yeah. I think there's a, you know, that everyone talks about a perfect storm, but this really is it.
2: Yeah, and there's no obvious solution to it. Because, you know, with loo rolls, it was just, we'll just wait and then everyone will have enough loo rolls and then loo rolls will come yeah. back.
4: But there is petrol at the... Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, the refiner is. It's just a matter of getting it there, I guess.
2: And that's the point you make in your comment, isn't it, uh, Hugo? That when I think was Grant Shap said, "There's plenty of petrol." Is that what it is? But it's in the wrong place.
3: Exactly. Yeah. So th- thanks a lot. It's like you know, you, it's like there's plenty of food, but other people have eaten it. But like, you just the, you look at the you look at the countries that are currently having the biggest problems at the moment with haulage in the Europe area, uh, and they're us, and they're Poland. And the reason for that is because all the Polish drivers are basically being bought up by richer companies, of which we are no longer one, because they can't come here and drive anyway. So, I mean, so, I mean yes, it, it is overstating it to say this is a problem that is Brexit-caused, but it is Brexit that prevents us from having the solution, yeah. which would be to do over Poland. And, and the like politics Germany's of do. Brexit
2: plays as much part as the actual practicalities as well. Um, Alice, let, um, Alice, Janice, let's talk about the C word. Not conservatives... Not cuts, but it's the, it's the word that everyone's using at conference. Oh, cervix, yes.
4: Yes, well, I'm, I'm happy to be sitting between two ejaculators here at, at conference. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Janice. That's the yeah. nicest thing you've ever said. Because to this me. is all you about. Me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope we. Well, I'm assuming here. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, cervix has become the word of conference because it's unsayable. And uh, we've had this ridiculous situation of Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves being asked if it's okay to say it, women. Have cervixes and so it's the most bizarre situation and i I, you know and it's kind of embarrassing for keir stompett to stutter his answer and rachel reeves to stutter her answer and uh yesterday david lammy say that people who uh believe that women have cervixes are dinosaurs who are hoarding rights i think it's a strange thing to think that women are hoarding their rights uh when they have problems as well so uh yeah i wanted to say really what it gets back to is um the one person who's not at conference this week is rosie duffield yeah. and uh what what she said was uh women uh women have cervixes. and this was, goes back to a debate which has been running for some time now with things like cancer charities where cancer charities and the nhs actually are saying you can't say Women, in terms of advertising women to come forward for cervical smears, you say persons with cervixes or cervix havers, or just as with uh, menstrual charities, we talk about menstruators rather than women. And women are really, really fed up with being called menstruators. And uh, there was this week, there was uh, the Lancet called uh, women uh, bodies with vaginas. You know, and the reason I um, called you ejaculators is because it never goes the other way around. You know, men are never described as bodies with penises or, or ejaculators or prostate havers. So, you know, I really do think that the Labour leadership should have thought of a better answer to a question which is really, really fundamental, which is whether women are allowed to defend their sex-based rights and allowed to call themselves by their own language.
2: So, yeah, there's um, the ex- a very peculiar exchange with Andrew Marle on, on uh, Sunday. Anjan Marr said, does someone who thinks only women have a cervix is welcome the Labour Party? And uh, he replied, the Keir Starmer said, look, Andrew, we need to have a mature, respectful debate about trans rights. And we need to, I think, bear in mind the trans community amongst the most marginalised and abused communities. And wherever we've got to on the law, we need to go further. And we want to go further on that. But whatever the debate is, it needs to be a tolerant debate. And I'm absolutely sure that our conference will be a place where it's safe for that debate to take place. And it is. I mean, crucially, not even using the word. No, he he went straight into
4: talking about trans rights rather than about women. Yeah. And, you know, I just wanted to mention about a safe debate. You know, I was talking to some women from a group called Labour Women's Declaration, which is basically about defending the 2010 Equality Act, which was a Labour Act. And they're having a meeting in Brighton tonight. And they cannot even announce the venue of that meeting until after four o'clock because they are scared of, A, the venue... Uh, being closed down by activists ringing up and saying you cannot hold a meeting here and b so many activists kicking the windows and disrupting it as they did in 2019 when there was a similar meeting why why has it it?
2: got so mad and you've you've written about this a lot and you've had a lot of abuse as a result but why why has this topic got so toxic and uh, and and, because there were other issues being debated at conferences that different sides feel very strongly about but they're not all going around kicking people's windows in
4: well because there is a there is a almost a religious schism between people like me who believe that sex and gender are different things and that you'll have a biological sex and then maybe if you're a trans person you identify as a different gender but it doesn't change your sex and there are people who believe through stonewall that you literally change sex when you become a trans person and therefore you should be given all the rights of someone of the same biological sex, which is different, difficult in very, very limited circumstances, mainly in life. It doesn't matter. You can call yourself whatever you like. And I would always respect someone's pronouns or whatever, but, you know, there are certain circumstances where it really matters, like prisons, for example, uh, uh, rape crisis centres, and also, you know, uh, changes in the law, which Stonewall want, are very, very um, extreme and very, very radical. And all women feminists in those sort of things like Labour Women's Declaration want, is to maintain the status quo. But they're not even allowed to discuss (laughs) changes in the law that are being proposed. So usually it's the other way around. And the other side, if they want to change the law, have got to convince everybody else. But they are saying you cannot defend existing law. So that's why it's so toxic. Hugo?
3: Yeah, obviously I'm not going to miss the chance to mansplain gender and (laughs) and rights to James Uh, uh, I mean, look, it's notable it's notable when when, when politicians fall foul of of this question, as Ed Davies did, as Keir Starmer did, as Rachel Reeves did, they're never being asked about rights. They're never being asked about, um, you know, who who should have the right to go where, what women's rights should be protected in what kind of way, what rights should trans people have to enter enter women's spaces, etc. And and I suspect, I mean, I suspect if they were being asked about rights, there'd be a much more informed and indeed less sort of toxic debate. Actually, they're being asked really about sort of ontological philosophy, as you said, a, a religious division. And in the end, the religious division doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, when when Keir Starmer's asked, do only women have cervixes? Really, what that rests on is is your philosophical, ontological definition of woman, uh, of the word woman. And people will take that in different ways. And many would say the whole process of sort of trans awareness is about a redefinition of the word woman. Really, but that's just like, I mean, that's not politics. That's... That's philosophy. I mean, and, and I, I think if I think a lot of the heat could be taken out. Maybe I'm, I'm, this is probably incredibly naive of me, but I think a lot of the heat could be taken out of the debate if you literally were talking about rights: well, who has access to this space and who does not, rather than having this, rather than the, the whole question coming down to whether you're going to sort of be facing down somebody who identifies as a woman or man and having to say you are not one.
4: But if, at the level of language and law, you are erasing the, the definition of what a woman is, these definitions are important. You know, mm. if you are saying that somebody who says they're a woman is literally biologically a woman, which is crazy, though it sounds, is what the Stonewall side is doing. They are literally trying to elide these things so they are the same. You have to have these philosophical discussions. And, God, you know, I don't want to have a philosophical... I agree with you, it should be about rights. And what Labour Women's Declaration says is about very, very tiny... Uh, areas in which there is uh, gender and sex come up against each other and there needs to be a definition like if you are going to, you know, for example, under the Gender Recognition Act, any trans person with a gender recognition certificate, trans woman goes into the female prisons automatically, even if they're a rapist, right, that they automatically go into the female prison estate. And so, if you have self ID, you have more people who are able to get a gender recognition certificate so they would be able to go Uh, into the female uh, estate. So, you are literally saying these people are women, they they are literally female. And of course, you know, who are in women's prisons? Some of the most vulnerable people in the whole of society who are 90% of of women in women's prisons have been sexually abused. And you are saying that it's okay for male people because we have changed the ontological definition of what a woman is for these people to go into women's prisons. So, unfortunately, Hugo, and I really regret it, we have to discuss at the level of philosophical definition. But a point,
2: suppose, how, how many cases are there where that is the case, where somebody is identifying, as a, gone through the process of self-ID and then put in a women's... Because isn't there a, part, there's a slight issue of... You can always find one example well, to blow you know, up. Uh,
4: well, for example, um, 98% of sex crime is committed by male people, right? So in a women's prison, there may be one or two sex offenders. But if you are going to change the definition, if you are going to allow anybody who commits a sex crime to go into a women's prison, it wouldn't take very long before you double the number of sex offenders in women's prison if you are going to allow anybody to self-identify. as then the actually,
2: the problem is the way that prisons are run, because there are men who attack men who end up in prison and uh, with other men. So the issue... Why, the, why
4: is why are prisons single sex in the first place? I don't know. Why is it a human rights uh, uh, right across the world under Amnesty yeah, International yeah. to have single sex prisons to protect women from men? Because they, this is safeguarding, basic safeguarding yeah, yeah. to protect women.
3: Yeah, Hugo. So, Janice, I just wanted to, to ask you. I'm sorry, Matt. I know it's yeah. your show, and I should be asking the questions. It's an <laughs> no, old carry on. old habits die hard. Um, <laughs> how um, how much of a problem for Labour is this? Is all this? Are there? I mean, because the 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 you have the you have the the shadow cabinet are very much sort of treading the Stonewall line on mm. this. Presumably, there are large elements of the activist base who are much more wary.
4: Well. Yes, I would imagine there is. There is, an, you know, women are 51% of the electorate. Yeah. Mm. So, and you know, judging from the sort of experiences I have writing columns about this subject, and, com- and being in the world and being approached, you know, and I don't even go on TV. I'm not even a very recognisable person, but you know, people come up to me, and say, and women have... come up to me and say, "Thank you. I am so angry. Women are really sick of this. You know, most women have, have marched with LGBT people." You know, they are the most tolerant of trans people. You know, I've met trans people through trans women through doing this who feel appalled. Trans people mainly just want to get on with their lives. What yeah. these extreme activists are demanding is in no way what they want. They want better health care. They want, you know, they want not to be discriminated in terms of housing and walking down the street. And I. Everybody is absolutely with them. What these people are demanding is making life more difficult for them. Many people, some trans people write to me and say that. You know, and as far as the Labour Party goes, women, you know, there's this phrase now, if you you don't respect my sex, you won't get my ex. And I guarantee that phrase will be used at the next election. And a party like Labour, if it cannot breach this ontological divide and address the needs of women and of trans people, it is going to lose women's votes. You know, look at um, Jo Swinson. She was in a marginal seat. She lost it, you know, because she couldn't answer on Woman's Hour, what is a woman? Every single politician in this country at the next election is going to be asked, what is a woman? If they can't answer that in a way that... It makes any sense. And actually,
2: the point you were making that most women and men go around their days not thinking about this stuff. And when you're suddenly confronted by, if Keir Stum was asked on the telly, what is a woman? And most normal people watching it will think, what on earth is exactly. this going on? Why can't I answer the question? Well, I think uh, hopefully we've managed to, to navigate that without getting any of us into trouble. Janice Turner and Hugo Rifkin, then, of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash. Times Red Box and you can hear Hugo every Saturday morning from 10am on Times Radio Right, coming up, the ghost of Tony Blair
1: and 365-day returns.
0: Forget the past. No more bosses versus workers. We are on the same side, the same team, and Britain United will win. Ask me my three main priorities for government, and I tell you, Education, education, and education. This terrorism isn't our fault. We didn't cause it. It's not the consequence of foreign policy. It is an attack on our way of life. It is our destiny to lead in Europe. And Europe needs us. For we have a vision of Europe. And we must remain able to influence the way that it works. It's been a very long time waiting for this moment and all I can tell you is that I am deeply proud and privileged to stand before you as the new Labour Prime Minister of this country.
2: Well, we're going to we're going to examine the ghost of uh, Tony Blair in some detail now, with uh, with three with a stellar panel here in uh, Brighton. We're joined by John Rental, the chief political commentator at the Independent, and Blair biographer. Morning, John. Good morning. Uh, we've also got Susie a uh, journalist and author. Morning, Susie. Morning. And uh, uh, Patrick Kennedy, uh, former former journalist, some time ago. Yeah, a bit of bit. Too long ago, Matt. Uh, That was when you were good. And then you became... (laughs) Then you were a spin dot for Ed Miliband and Sadiq Khan, but you're much better now. Uh, Yes, recovering. Um, John, um, are you getting a bit teary-eyed hearing hearing the voice of Tony while you were at a Labour Party conference? Uh,
5: Not really, no. I never liked any of Tony Blair's speeches. (laughs) 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 He was brilliant, though. But what what I am struck by at this conference is... Nobody mentions him, but there are quite a lot of um, more or less secret Blairites uh, among the delegates this year. Uh, the, I mean, the, you know, the, the Corbynites are, are, are probably in a minority. I mean, certainly in the in the in the votes, uh, and that really has changed. I mean, that's 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 the party coming back to its senses. I think.
2: Is that your sense as well, Susie?
6: Yeah, to some extent. I mean, you're always going to have. Um you know the shadow of a very successful leader, and he was a very successful leader. Whatever you think of what he achieved, um, but the the issue is the reason we've talked about him for so many years since he's gone is because what has come after him has just not been as good at projecting itself. And Mandelson said, some, I can't remember the exact words, but he was very good when he said that um, you know, Boris Johnson has a weak character but a very strong personality and Keir has a very good character but a very weak personality really and he can't project out. it out and because of that and Corbyn had a similar thing he projected his personality only went about five feet went as far as his allotment and that was it <laughs> and Keir has to project what he is further and then we can stop talking about tony blair which i'm sure we would all much rather do uh,
2: patrick when you were working for ed Miliband. It felt like th- there were a lot of contortions there about whether or not to talk about Tony Blair, celebrate, criticise,
7: distance. I, I think one of the things that, that, that Labour is really bad at as a party is, um, is is trashing its former record. And, you know, I think if, if Tony Blair led a government, as I say, you know, park the issue of Iraq, which was a divisive Iraq for a second... Blair, Blair led Labour to to three victories, which was was un, unprecedented. Um, did oversee a, a public you know big public sector reforms, changed the country in a uh, in, 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 in in many many ways, and um, surely this is, is is something at least to be noted and celebrated. But I think I think you're right. I think that the. the because, because largely of Iraq, the the, pros- the, 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 the habit of doing down um, the Labour government's uh, achievements um, did start under, under Ed, and of course it reached its apogee under under Jeremy Corbyn, who wanted to do absolutely everything to distance themselves from. Uh, from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, but I think actually Keir Starmer has, has started to reverse the process and I have heard things this week and previously about, you know, um, what Labour was able to do for people which, you know, is a start. There were several mentions of Blair in the uh, the famous essay, Yes, I, if, in, if you've got all the way through it. Yeah, I, I, I no certainly did Corbyn. get all the way through it. And no mentions <laughs> of Corbyn. You went, well, yeah, because he,
2: he listed the successful government, Labour governments rather than otherwise. Well, in fact, yesterday afternoon, I went around the conference centre and... Uh, just ask people a very straightforward question. What do you think about Tony Blair?
6: I think he's uh, probably the greatest leader the Labour Party's ever had, certainly the only one to, to win three elections. So. so
2: why is the Labour Party got such a weird relationship with the only person alive to ever win an election?
6: Because sometimes I just think we uh, prefer being in opposition to being in government, and people forget what the first clause of our constitution is, which is to get a Labour government to transform lives and transform the country. And I, I hope we can get back to remembering that soon.
8: I was not a fan. I, I think there was some early policy initiatives like Sure Start, which were were impressive. After that, for me, it was all downhill. Um, Increased privatisation, of course, the Iraq war. I honestly feel that uh, the sooner we can move on from the Blair era, the better. Blair
5: um, has got a lot to answer for in terms of his legacy. And the legacy he left was
7: the fact that he got involved in what was declared as an illegal war and the fact that he was sucked into that by uh, Bush. Uh, and instead of thinking about the consequences of the damage that he would do to the Middle Eastern countries, and we're still picking up that legacy. We're still picking up the refugees from that Middle East crisis that Blair and Bush, they actually started all that off and kicked all that off, and we're now paying the price for that.
2: I'm such a Blairite that he actually once voted for me <laughs> uh, when I stood in St James Ward. No, I, uh, um, more seriously, he did a great deal of good the Iraq war was wrong in very, well, you know the story, that was just wrong. Um, and I think he made a mistake in um, handling the uh, immigration of people from the accession countries, letting them in all at once. I think his legacy will be forever tarnished by Iraq.
0: As a prime minister, he did fundamentally change the UK and he improved the quality of life for lots of people. He definitely made a lot of mistakes, we can't deny that. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's really about to talk about Tony Blair. It's about to talk about
7: Boris Johnson and what he's doing to the country. That would be a good politician's answer. What about you? I don't care about Tony Blair. It's before my time. I want to get a Labour Prime Minister now, and I want to do that by getting proportional representation.
5: No, nobody's perfect, but, I mean, I would take a Tony Blair government now over what we've got at the moment.
2: So there we are. That was the views. A mixed bag of uh, views, as we said. Susie. Do you think part of the problem is that if, if, if the Labour Party won't go around saying the Labour Party are good when they're in power... Nobody else is going to do it.
6: No, I think it's also to do with the founding principles of Labour compared to the Tories. Labour is built on... Uh, and comes out of a, a, a really big hinterland of saying, look, something is wrong, we need to do something about it. And therefore, looking at issues and trying to, and, and saying where and defining the wrongness. And it's done it to itself for a very, very long time to its own detriment. Whereas the Tories, they never have an argument about whether or not Mrs. Thatcher was a good <laughs> or a bad person. They never question whether Ian Duncan Smith is human or angry squirrel. They just say, you know, it's great, we're in power, yay. They concentrate on what worked well. And they try to keep on doing it. And they don't do this navel-gazing. It's a it's a fundamental thing. I don't think you're going to be able to change until you have someone that you can't pick at quite as easily.
2: What do you think, Patrick? Is it, is it something fundamentally odd about the Labour Party?
7: Well, it's a, it's a very good question. I... I, I... I, I don't think necessarily it is, but I do think that, that the Labour Party has spent decades probably doing it. You know, you had sort of gates against uh, the other side in the in the in the, in the 60s. Um, you know, uh, you had the Bennites in, in the in the 70s, the, the, the split with the with the SDP, and then of course you had the great um, you know the, the 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 great New Labour split between Brown and Blair, which provided a kind of internal opposition, kept journalists like us in uh, mortgage payments. <laughs> (laughs) for decades really (laughs) going on about it but it also seemed I think that when you have a kind of internal opposition like that in the same party that's a governing party it really isolates the real opposition and you know it relegates you to, in newspaper terms, you know, a spokesman for Mr. Duncan Smith said, you know, one paragraph at the end of a thirty-story, thirty-paragraph story that may be about Blair and Brown rowing, but still makes the the, the reader, the consumer of uh, radio programs, the, the, the consumer of news broadcast, look at. Is it basically there's just one part where well, there's just one party, and the other one doesn't really matter very much, even though it's having you know rows about itself. It's having rows between par- between you know powerful people called the Prime Minister and the Chancellor.
5: A bit of a difference when, uh, when the Labour Party's in power. Mm. Uh, I think you can afford that kind of uh, internal opposition. I mean, that kind of uh, a- antipathy towards uh, the Blair government while you're out of power is, is completely pointless.
2: But actually, the same dynamic was also true when Ed Miliband was Labour leader because the Conservatives, now, as in the yeah. Conservatives and the Lib Dems in government, that was the, uh, you know, that was interesting. Yeah, exactly. How, how you punch through that, you know, and it, it maybe the same is partly true of this government. You know, there's quite a lot of interesting characters going on there. Yeah. And by comparison, Keir Starmer's not as interesting.
6: No, and he should be. When you meet him in person, he's a dynamic, powerful, uh, principled, good bloke. You'd be happy to go for a pint with him.
5: Relaxed and cheerful. He's relaxed He's yeah.
6: cheerful. I've spoken to him about my nuclear test veterans, and he's thumping the table, and he's, he's not just saying the things because there's a journalist asking. does He actually genuinely does care about stuff. But he can't project that any further than the table. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the fundamental problem. He has to get it out there and across... The radio and everything else, when he gives his speech tomorrow, he's going to stand up and give a speech which has been written by committee over months, has been negotiated with various Labour teams for defence and trans rights and cervixes and things like this. And he's not going to give a speech about him and yeah. his vision. And that's why he has to sit down with a pen but and do his thing. Doesn't
2: that tell you something about him? Yes. That, that uh, 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 an inability to say, no, this is what I actually think, and I'm going to accept that some people aren't going to, you know. Yeah. Because if you, if you just knock all the edges off, you end up with 13,000 words of motherhood and apple pie.
6: Yes, you do. And that's, again, it's a fundamental founding principle of the Labour Party, that it's a group, it's a cooperative, it's a discussion, we have this negotiation in public, and it's not an autocracy as, <laughs> as the Dories are. But... Blair was successful because he ran it as an autocracy. There was his sofa government, and he just said, "This is what's happening," and it happened.
2: And it's still the, the Labour, uh, the new Labour government, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, still remains uh, fascinating. Well, it's fascinating to people like us. You were t- you were touching on it how it kept you in uh, a mortgage payments patch. But there's this new documentary series, the BBC. I think comes out next week. Uh, let's
7: take a listen to the trailer.
0: Gordon and I were as close as two people could be in politics.
7: We had this shared ideal that we could create a Labour Party that was once again capable of winning elections.
5: When it was good, we were unbeatable. They had a huge mutual respect. Gordon and Tony had different visions of new Labour.
0: In the end, that's
5: politics.
2: So that's it. It's this new uh, series on New Labour. that The BBC are releasing next week, and John, you've been a um, an advisor on this series.
5: Indeed, I'm a consultant to the to the BBC. Uh, John Davis and I at Kings we run a course called the Blair Years, um, where. <laughs> but he was uh, uh, w- w- one of your interviewees was saying that they, they weren't even born when Tony Blair was prime minister uh, we do have students Apparently it wasn't me was, <laughs> we, we <laughs> my, my children were born when when Tony Blair had just become <laughs> prime minister we we have stu- we have students graduate students who weren't yeah. born when uh, Tony Blair was prime minister so we do there's quite a lot of explaining to be done um, i mean i understand why the labor party shouldn't you know dwell on the past and all that and could be completely absorbed by Uh, Tony Blair but I do think it's so important to learn from uh, what Tony Blair and and Gordon Brown and all the team around them uh, did extremely well and I think this documentary captures it brilliantly.
2: And it has got all of them it's got everyone
5: it's got in well, it's, it's got well, it's got Tony Blair and Gordon, and Gordon Brown for a start, yeah. but it's also got on a, the
2: same programme but not necessarily in the same room. <laughs> not not, in, the same, not <laughs> in the same. Like
6: Stevie Wonder and Paul McCartney when they did Ebony and Ivory <laughs> <laughs> on opposite continents.
7: I'm not sure who's who in that metaphor. <laughs> Are you excited about this, Patrick? Massively excited. <laughs> you know, apart with with that and Succession restarting in. Uh Couple of in a, in a, in a week or so's time. I mean, it's it's got to be a golden era for, uh, for 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 television. I think that um, uh, John um, reminded us actually that the BBC are are putting out all episodes at once. So You can properly binge it. Properly binge it. You know, we'll we'll so definitely John, John, be doing Don't tell that us thing. how it ends. Don't don't, <laughs> don't ruin the ending for us. Now <laughs> there was this guy called Tom Watson. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Susie, um, is this
2: helpful for the Labour Party to be reminded? Because I mean, it's, it's next year is twenty-five years since the Labour Party won uh, in nineteen ninety-seven, and yeah, but actually the ins and outs of the deal—the deal, the deal struck between Tony Blair and Goldberg is still more interesting than you know, what well, Keir Storm and Angela Rayner were talking about today.
6: It is to us, I suppose, to some extent. I mean, I'm not going to be really bothering to watch the documentary. I'll see the highlights somewhere, and I'm, I'm not too bothered. Otherwise, <laughs> I, was, I was a general news reporter when they were in power, and I was busy doing murders and things like that, and quite happy
2: to... You mean reporting on murders? Actually doing not reporting. Do, not doing murders. <laughs> not doing <laughs> murders. <laughs> well, I thought about one or two.
6: Um, but, no, I mean, I've still got four seasons of The Walking Dead to get through, so I'd rather, you know, go through those zombies rather than the ones that the ladies <laughs> <got>. <laughs>
2: But do you think Keir Starmer should watch it, John?
5: Well, of course, yes, because I think he will understand something for, about the sort of interpersonal dynamics of of a successful uh, Labour team. Um, I mean, the way that Tony Blair manages Gordon Brown now, even now, you know, <laughs> from separate continents, doing their interviews separately, um, he treats him with respect and a bit of a bit of. Uh, uh, a bit of courtesy which he you know Gordon Brown doesn't deserve in my view but it shows you how to manage people uh, and manage a very difficult team but,
7: but, but there were sort of um, you know sort of stormy rows and, and and times when when blair wanted to sack brown and brown was about to walk out and you know m- you've ruined my effing budget, uh, topical, national insurance rises in, in <laughs> the early 20, 20, 20 years or so ago, wasn't it? it? It wasn't, you know, I think you paint a picture, John, of, of, of slightly smoother than the, <laughs> than the, the actual, <laughs> actual reality, from what I remember anyway.
6: I think we should all have a gig doing the consultancy for these documents. Sounds like a great gig. Sounds like <laughs> a great yeah, yeah. Just
7: offloading all your, just re- reusing all your old gear.
2: <laughs> I, I, do, I, just, I want to ask you about, you know, the, who, who are the heirs to play uh, in the Labour Party right now, both politically and... And, you know, having that personality. Uh, you're listening to uh, Matt Jolly here on Times Radio. Matt Chorley, mid-morning on Times Radio. Yeah, nice to This Matt Jolly live at the Labour Party conference in Brighton where we're talking about, he's not here, but he sort of lingers in the air, uh, the ghost of Tony Blair. And uh, yesterday I caught up with Andy Burnham and asked him whether Labour is still too hung up on Tony Blair and he told me it was time to move on.
8: Tony did some things that were really good, that changed the country for the better, but made mistakes. Gordon Brown did some things that were really good, but made mistakes. I hopefully am doing things that are good, but I will make mistakes as mayor of Greater Manchester. That's just the nature of of politics. Sometimes the mistakes are substantial and people will have a very strong disagreement with them. But on the whole, the country moved forward between 1997 and 2010. If I think back to that night of the Olympics, the opening ceremony, I think that was the Britain that Labour created because that was still our, our work was still yeah. f- feeding through. That, that is what we created. That night, that magical night, you know, was where we left Britain, basically. Not perfect, not, you know, not, not without massive arguments and disagreements over the way, but in a better place than when we found it in 1997. And I just think people need to remember that and feel proud of that rather than endlessly arguing about everything that you know, was done in that period.
2: That was Andy Burnham speaking to me uh, yesterday afternoon. I mean, he basically you know, agrees entirely with the panel, I think. Um, uh, John Rental, um, I mean, Andy Burnham is an interesting character, this sort of great political shapeshifter from <laughs> Blairite spad to Brownite cabinet minister to Corbyn frontbencher and now king of the North.
5: Yeah, well, and I remember him vividly when he was a Blairite junior minister, uh, adopting quite a, uh, a Blairite tough on crime. Uh, position on, on the police. Which we're getting
2: uh, now again today from uh, Nick from Thomas th- Simmons, the Shadow Home Secretary, is resurrecting tough on crime, tough on the yeah, course of crime.
5: Neither Andy Burnham nor Nick Thomas Simmons are the, the new Blair, I'm afraid, though. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who do you think? Is anyone the new Blair, Susie?
6: Well, um,. It's about personality and it's about oratory and it's about holding together the, the loose coalition that they've got of people of very, very strong characters and principles on different ends of the party. I think David Lammy's got some of the oratory. I don't know if he's got to be able to hold together the party per se. I think perhaps, Burnham, I'm, I'm not his biggest fan and I'm not, I don't like him very much, but I think perhaps, because <laughs> he's not talking to me about nuclear test veterans if you're listening, Andy. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that... He's got lovely eyelashes. I do think that... Um, He's probably got the, the most ability at the moment of holding together the left and the right and driving forward because people would be able to put some faith in him and his ability to convince the voter. And that is what Blair had. They knew that he worked and therefore they could all come behind him and he could hold them together, such as they were, even Brown. And you need someone like that. I think Burnham's the best at the moment. but
2: Patrick Hennessy?
7: Well, of course, I'm going to say my uh, my, my former employer, Sadiq, but to, to to make a point about Sadiq, as I opposed mean, to Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, you told me that I did personally, uh, you know, lost the election for uh, for Ed in uh, in, in, in 2015. I, I played a role, but but maybe I wasn't entirely to blame. Um, I, th- I think uh, you know what, what what Sadiq can do is, is definitely hold together a coalition. I think he proved that in, 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 in 2016 and, and with his recent re-election. I think the actual heir to uh, Blair was Cam- was Cameron. Um, and I think that that's where the phrase heir to Blair started yeah, with Cameron was. and his you know, camp followers, Cameron and Osborne and the, and the, and the, 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 the Tory uh, young Turks at the time, yeah, idolised Blair, it's not too strong a word they, they admit it in, 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 in their books I think Cameron, um, Cameron was the absolute heir to Blair he, he, he learned so much about what Blair did internally I think as leader of the opposition do a lot to show your party has changed, there's, there's, you know, there's a lesson there for Starmer, which I think he is—he is learning. You have to show, you know, when when you, your party is, is uh, has changed. And Cameron, you know, went from 190 odd seats to 310. You know, it it can be done. Labour needs to be um, you know more self confident and uh, more uh, and and get into more of a sort of winning winning mindset. Cameron, you know, three years behind b- before his um, election win of 2010 was in the doldrums, wasn't yeah. he? You know, there were floods in his constituency when he was in Rwanda. He was, his, his leadership was under serious threat. The front page of the House magaz- Tory House magazine, The Spectator, was all about how, how Cameron was in peril. And yet a few years later, he was, you know, he was winning not quite the majority, but you know a really significant gain of seats. That shouldn't be beyond, beyond Labour. There are going to be big crises between now and though?
2: then. Is it beyond the current Labour? Is it beyond Keir
7: Starmer? No, I don't think it is. Okay. I don't think it is. I think you know you you're, you're going to see you know big big changes probably this winter. You know, we're seeing the start of it now, uh, with a fuel crisis an economic crisis. So, you know, an, uh, and uh, an energy crisis all coming together. These are big things that are going to happen. You, you mentioned your boss Sadiq Khan. Mm. Does he think about this? Does he Does he think that one day he'll be the leader of the Labour Party? Well, he, you, you, you'd have to ask him or his current team now, Matt. But, I mean, you know, what <laughs> he always he, says... Has he, he ever discussed have, it with you in the his, in, in the past? Uh, if he has such conversation, we still have to remain private, <laughs> it, uh, you know, until, until, until it either happens or, or, or my memoirs. But, no, I mean, he, he, always says, he gives the same answer. I'm here for as long as Londoners want me uh, to be, to be London, that his mayor. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to leave it at that one, until the memoirs anyway. I'm not sure the best way to, to launch a leadership bid is... When you've been voted out by the good people of London, that seems a
2: strange contortion. Um, so, what, what's uh, what? What one thing then? Finally, do you think Keir Starmer could learn from from Tony Blair? He's got his big speech tomorrow. He speaks of lots of shadow cabinet ministers uh, last night. Even even the most loyal were basically saying, "This is it tomorrow." He's had his 18 months, he's complained about the pandemic and how he hasn't had a chance and he hasn't been in a room full of people and he hasn't had the opportunity to address the nation and he hasn't had the TV profile of that. Tomorrow afternoon for an hour, this is his chance now. So, so.
6: He's got to do two things. He's got to do, firstly, he's got to do a bled with the Labour machine, which he's started to do with changing some of the membership rules. He's got to get the machinery under his control. At the moment, there's too many committees. Just going to the Labour Party for a comment on something has to get passed <laughs> off by about 15 <laughs> different social media teams and the press office and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it takes days. They, they are immobile and it do- it's not good and that's an inheritance from, from Corbyn partly and the other thing is he's got to have some facial expressions <laughs> right? when, I, when I write my columns um, I'm always looking for pictures of the, of the politicians pulling a funny face so I can do a funny caption with it and, and if I look for Boris Johnson there's a thousand and yeah. look for Keir Starmer and it's the same it's just, it's just Keith over and over again. And what you need is smiles and scowls and you need him looking passionate, being passionate, but, you know, being accessible and sharing his body language and everything else, his emotions, his feelings. We don't get that. He's got to emote and he's got to change the machinery.
2: And pull some funny faces. John.
5: Susie's uh, absolutely right. He's just got to stop looking miserable. (laughs) Um, I mean, he looks anxious and miserable most of the time. I mean, too many of the... Labour frontbenchers, they come to the the dispatch box in the House of Commons and they complain and they whinge and they look miserable and they say the country's dreadful and everything's dreadful and we're dreadful. (laughs) They've got to stop it. I mean, the thing about Tony Blair was he was, you know, he was a ray of sunshine. I mean, he's you know he smiled and he was cheerful and he offered an optimistic. And literally, view things of, could of only get better.
2: Was uh, yeah. had the word better in it. It sounded <laughs> well, positive. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
5: absolutely. And so you know, Keir Starmer's got to got to do a bit of that. Which, as as Susie was saying, you know, in, in person, he is naturally you know charming and relaxed and, 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 and good company. Uh, but he's got to, he's got to project that somehow, and he's got to take some risks. I mean, Tony Blair took took some really big risks. I mean, he prepared endlessly before he before he made the jump on clause four and all the rest of it. But, you know, he calculated when to take a risk and he took it.
7: Finally, Patrick. I mean, I think it has been very, it has, you can't underestimate the force of, be, the, the difficulty I think of being the uh, opposition leader in the middle of a pandemic where everybody has to be working from home. Every meeting, every interaction has to be via video. I do think even, you know, that would have tested even, you know, the, the great communicators such as Tony Blair, such as Bill Clinton coming in from, from, from opposition, but to really be denied serious ways of letting the country get to know who you are. I, I don't think you can underestimate that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I th- as, as I said, I, I think I think he's taking the first steps. I think well, I think he's the, this this conference is going, you know, according to plan in terms of what he wanted to do. Let's see what he does on uh, tomorrow with his with his big speech. That's so all we've got time for on this
2: episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget, you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, ten till one on Times Radio, and we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.